But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who were with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Well, good morning. Um, technically, it's nearly the afternoon. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's not far off the afternoon. So I don't know if you're a morning person. Um, anyone a morning person here? Kind of consider themselves a few? Okay. It's only going to be a few at this service, isn't it? Because uh, generally, that's, uh, that was my thinking on this. You know, some of us are kind of up with the larks. Some of us stay up till uh, the owls are still going. Um, some of us in between. If you're not sure, if you ever want to test yourself, then apparently the test is when the alarm goes off in the morning, do you hit the snooze button? If you do, that means you're not a morning person. Or if you're like me, you don't even hear the alarm going off. That means it's a definite, Okay. Um, there was one, one year where I got up for a, 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 an Easter service, a sunrise Easter service, um, which is an amazing view, but I was not the prettiest of sights, I have to say. Uh, there was one this morning, Fred was telling me uh, he was there, so I know some of you have been up pretty early uh, this morning as well. And our passage today starts very early in the morning. So for some of you, it's going to take a bit of imagination um, to get into this. On the first day of the week, which was the Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they prepared and they went to the tomb. Um, this is an incredible act, really, uh, of these women, of, of strength, uh, of courage, uh, and of love that they've demonstrated uh, to Jesus. Because most of the Jesus' followers had abandoned him. Um, in fact, the ones that are there are generally the women. It's the women that were at the cross when Jesus was crucified, uh, although John was also there, um, you'll remember, um, but the rest of the disciples, including Peter, with all these great boasts uh, of what he was going to do for Jesus, has gone into hiding. And the three women that are named in verse 10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and uh, Mary, the mother of James. Mary Magdalene uh, was a woman who'd been set free by Jesus from all sorts of, uh, of her demons in life um, and was devoted to him. Joanna is interesting. She was married to a guy called Chutza. I think that's how you pronounce it. And Chutza was the head steward for Herod, Herod of Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. The same Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist. So Chutza's his head steward, his chief steward, and Joanna is married to him. So it's with incredible risk um, and courage that she ends up going to the cross. It's the same Herod who's humiliated Jesus when Pilate sends uh, Jesus to him and he mocks him and he puts uh, a robe on him and all of that. And it's that same household that Joanna comes from and stands at the cross and is there on this Sunday morning um, at the tomb. These women were devoted followers 
And on this Sunday morning at the tomb, they are absolutely brokenhearted, but they are still devoted. They are grieving, but they're still engaged with the future. They are overwhelmed, but they are still serving as they come to prepare and, uh, and treat the, the body, as it were, still expecting Jesus to be dead because of the impact that this Jesus has had on them. Verse 2, it says this, They found the stone, so the stone rolled away. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, While they were wondering about this, okay, while they were wondering, the, the word means perplexed. Okay, it comes from a, a Greek word meaning to lose one's way. Um, to be entirely at a loss. They have no idea. They are utterly bamboozled as to where the body is. It makes absolutely no sense to them whatsoever. And in John's account, when Mary goes out to the tomb, she meets who she thinks is the gardener, and then it's, it turns out to be Jesus who speaks to her. And she is utterly perplexed. She cannot work it out at all. And I think a lot of people think, well, that's first century you know, Jews, you know, that's the sort of thing that happened. If somebody died, oh, um, come back to life, might just be a resurrection. You know, sort of thing you might superstitiously believe something would happen. But that is not the case. Two reasons, two things that actually made it very difficult for people to accept that. The first was that the first century Jews didn't expect Jesus to be raised at all. Uh, perhaps you think you should have expected it. You know, Jesus predicted it. Why didn't they expect it? But to them, it was still an outrageous possibility, just like it is to us today. Um, for a man to be raised from the dead, or in fact for him to go through death and come out the other side, just left them utterly perplexed. One of the expectations of the day was that people would be raised by God at the very end of time. So when the world all comes to an end, then actually then people would be resurrected. And Martha refers to that in John chapter 11, 23 and 24. After Lazarus has died and Jesus uh, interacts with her and she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, but not in the here and now. Not in the here and now. That was one expectation they had, but it was a very different expectation to this. And the second view was that of the Sadducees. Uh, Mark 12, verse 8, who says, the Sadducees said, there is no resurrection. It isn't possible. It's, it's never going to happen. Nothing like that has happened. They were completely rational. And, uh, you know, like you and I, like many people in our world, how could that possibly happen? So these followers of Jesus at the tomb are wondering and are as confused as we would be. And the disciples are not expecting Jesus to be raised. So when the women come to them in verses 10 and 11, they don't believe the women because their words seem to them like nonsense. Okay? It utterly makes no sense. The disciples were convinced that the crucifixion was the end of everything. And they just slunk away, completely bewildered, completely demoralized, and uh, hugely dispirited. Back at the tomb in verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. In their fright, they are, they are terrified of what happens here. Okay, their perplexity turns to terror and to amazement. Now, can you imagine being in a tomb and somebody starts talking to you? Um, I had a job, a summer job once. 
And uh, it was in a, I worked in it as a porter in a psychiatric hospital. And one of the, uh, one of the tasks they had, they had a mortuary there, and uh, they had a restroom, special restroom, kind of chapel. And one of the jobs the port- porters got to do sometimes was to go in, if there was a deceased body, to take a ring off uh, a finger so you could, you know, do it carefully and, you know, um, respectfully, but, and to give it to the relatives. Now, there was one guy who was new to the job, and so the porters decided that they'd introduce him to this task. Um, but it wasn't a dead body that was in there. It was one of the other porters <laughs> under the white cloth. And this poor lad goes in and uh, has to carefully remove this ring. And as he does, the body sits up and starts talking to him. <laughs> you can imagine the bejeevers that put up in. You know, it was okay. But here, it's holy fear. Okay, these guys fall down on the ground. Okay, these angelic messengers are glowing like lightning. And so they fall down in fear. But they go away with it. Although terrified, they go away, away with great joy and great amazement to tell the other disciples. Okay, this is a dramatic, supernatural, yet very real encounter with the angelic realm that they have. Uh, Matthew's account re- records that they left the tomb with great fear and great joy. So it's as though God is rewarding these, these women um, for all they've done, you know, and gives them this precious experience and the privilege of taking this message uh, because of their devotion, because of their courage, because of their love that has motivated them. And there are times in life when life can be tough, but God is good. God is good in those times. Hebrews 6 and verse 10 says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And I sense there's probably one or two individuals this morning need to hear that, that God will not forget your work, that God will reward you and he will um, you know, he, he, he sees it, he acknowledges it, and you need to hear that today. But back to Luke's account, at first they're perplexed, it turns to terror, but then they remember. Okay, they remember. Verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Back in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus had begun to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he says he spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside to rebuke him because he didn't get it. Then over in chapter 9 of, of Mark's gospel, he says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. He will be killed, and after three days he will rise But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Then a third time in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over. He will be condemned to death. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, the the Roman occupying army, who will mock him and spit spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And Jesus said a lot of things in his life. He taught a lot of things. But this has to be the most outrageous of the things that he said. And he said it repeatedly. I will die and on the third day rise again. And if it doesn't come true, then why believe anything else he said? But if it does come true, 
then we've got to take every word that he said incredibly seriously. And it's predicted in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it ever happened that uh, his Messiah would rise. It is predicted by Jesus himself time after time. It is witnessed by the angels, as we've seen, by the women, by the disciples, as, as if you carry on reading the account. And over 500 people on one occasion witnessed Jesus being alive again afterwards. It's witnessed by Paul, the, the guy who persecuted the church severely on the road to Damascus. Um, it's preached throughout the early church by all the apostles. It's the key part of their teaching. And John himself, who you know, we've, we've heard about, um, when he writes his letter, 1 John, 1 John, he starts by saying, these are the things that we heard. These are the things that we've seen with our own eyes. These are the things that we looked at and that our hands have touched. And that's how he starts his letter because that's the, that's the reality uh, of it for him. And so the women at the tomb remembered. It all starts to come flooding back, all those times when he said, ah, that is what he's talking about. It's real, it's not then, it's, it's here and now. And they're absolutely bowled over by it. Then in verse nine, when they came back to the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the others. The 11, not the 12, because Judas has, has hanged himself uh, in remorse for betraying Jesus. But uh, they come and tell the, the 11 and the others. And it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them that told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. And now the disciples are in the same position the women were in. It now seems like nonsense to them. They are now perplexed by it. This doesn't happen. This is not possible. Peter, however, gets up and runs to the tomb. And bending over, he stoops and leans in to see, and he sees the strips of linen there. The body has, has just kind of gone from within. It's no longer there. The, the clothes, the grave clothes are all just there, you know, like a butterfly leaving a cocoon, uh, as it were. And uh, he's now trying to make sense of it all. And we see two responses to this. We see the response that says, we don't believe. This is impossible. This is total <coughs> nonsense. And we close off any possibility that it could have happened. Or, however unlikely it is, we investigate it. And we wonder about it. However unlikely that might seem in our experience. But is it wise to close off the possibility altogether, given the testimony that there is? Uh, in the book, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a point where um, uh, Lucy's been to Narnia. And uh, she's returned and she she's wants to tell others that, that this place exists. And they don't believe her. They absolutely don't believe her. They just think it's fanciful daydreaming. And so they come to the wise old professor in his office and uh, he asks them a question and says, well, you know, Lucy, is your sister usually honest? Is she usually trustworthy? And uh, they say, well, yeah, that's just it. She, she always is. And so he says, well, why don't you trust her now? And then goes on and says, for the moment then, unless there's any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she's telling the truth. Listen to this blog uh, that I read. I set out as a young man to debunk Christianity. I met a young Christian woman who challenged me to intellectually examine the evidence for Christianity. I accepted a challenge. I aimed to show her and everyone that Christianity was nonsense. I thought it would be easy. I, th I thought a careful investigation of the facts would expose Christianity as a lie. 
and its followers as dupes. But then a funny thing happened. As I began to investigate the claims of Christianity, I kept running up against the evidence. Time after time, I was surprised to discover the factual basis for the seemingly outlandish things that Christians believe. And one of the most convincing categories of evidence I confronted was this. The resurrection accounts found in the Gospels are not the stuff of fable, forgery, or fabrication. And he then goes on to highlight 10 aspects on, on an article called If I Fate the Resurrection. The disciples who were hiding and disillusioned are transformed into this joyful group of potential martyrs. Peter, who would not be seen, would not admit anything to do with Jesus, finds himself a few weeks later standing up in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem and saying, you've just killed the Son of God. You've murdered him and you're in big trouble. Pretty confrontational for a guy that was hiding. You know, he's simply saying he's alive. I had breakfast with him on the beach. And as far as we know, Peter was eventually martyred in in Rome for his, his faith in the resurrection. He abandons all fear of death. And why do that if actually you know it's not true? Actually, you know it's a lie. And actually, he's dead. And just to make some final points. The resurrection affirms to us that all that Jesus said has to be taken seriously. It affirms all of his words. Secondly, the resurrection confirms who Jesus is, that he really is who he claimed to be, God, the Son of God. The resurrection displays to us the power of God. The resurrection declares that death isn't the end. Death really isn't the end. It declares the reality of a future judgment and that God's ultimate justice will come through. His resurrection declares that Jesus' death wasn't fruitless, that his sacrifice achieved everything that the New Testament claims. Forgiveness of sins and of every sin. Relationship with God now and forever, which is eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates the uniqueness of Christianity. It is like no other. The resurrection gives us power to live the Christian life. And we can draw on that even today. And that what we do for Jesus will last. What we do for Jesus will be effective and our efforts will never be in vain.